This is Space Time Series 25, Episode 117, for broadcast on the 2nd of November 2022. Coming up on Space Time, a major blow in the search for life on other worlds, making oxygen on Mars with Moxie, and Russia ramps up its space program as the Kremlin continues its invasion of Ukraine. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Planetary scientists have suffered a significant setback in their search for exoplanets, that is, planets orbiting other stars, which could potentially harbour life. They've just discovered an Earth-like planet orbiting a red dwarf star, which appears to have no atmosphere at all. The findings reported in the Astrophysical Journal Letters could cause a major shift in the search for life on other worlds. You see, planetary scientists have always loved spectral type M red dwarf stars. They're the most common types of stars in the universe. In fact, they make up around three quarters of all the stars in our Milky Way galaxy alone. What makes them so good for planetary scientists is that they're small and relatively dim. That means there's not so much glare, and that allows scientists to have a better chance of detecting any orbiting planets around them reasonably easily. And of course, the hope is that some of those planets could be orbiting in the star's habitable zone. That's the distance from the star where it's not too hot and not too cold, but just right for liquid water, essential for life as we know it, to exist on a planet's surface. The problem is, and this is something planetary scientists have long known, is that red dwarfs tend to erupt fairly frequently in powerful stellar flares. Now, these flares would irradiate the surface and blow away any atmosphere of any nearby planet. Now, however, those fears have finally been confirmed, with the discovery of an Earth-like planet with no apparent atmosphere orbiting a red dwarf star. The planet is named GJ1252b. It's slightly larger than the Earth, and it orbits its host star every 12 hours. One of the study's authors, Michelle Hill from the University of California, Riverside, says the pressure from the star's radiation is immense, enough to blow the planet's atmosphere away. Now, mind you, Earth also loses some of its atmosphere over time because of the sun, but volcanic emissions and other carbon cycling processes make that loss barely noticeable by helping to replenish what's lost. However, in greater proximity to a star, especially a flaring red dwarf, a planet simply can't keep replenishing the amount of atmosphere that's being blown away. And even in our own solar system, there's a good example of this with the planet Mercury, the nearest planet to the Sun. Now, it does have an atmosphere, but it's extremely thin, made up of atoms blasted off its surface by the Sun. To determine that GJ1252b lacks an atmosphere, astronomers measured infrared radiation from the planet as its light was being obscured by a secondary eclipse. This type of eclipse occurs when a planet passes behind a star and the planet's light, as well as the light reflected from the star, are both blocked. The radiation revealed that the planet's scorching daytime temperatures, estimated to reach some 1,228 degrees Celsius, are hot enough to melt gold, silver and copper. It was this heat, coupled with the assumed low surface pressure, that led researchers to conclude there was no atmosphere. Now, even with a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide which traps heat, the researchers conclude that JG1252b would still not be able to hold onto any atmosphere. 
Hill says it's possible that this planet's condition could be a bad sign for planets even further away from this type of star. And the thing is, there are some 5,000 stars in the Earth's solar neighbourhood. Most of them are red dwarfs. This is space time. Still to come, making oxygen on Mars with Moxie, and Russia ramps up its space program as the Kremlin continues its relentless invasion of Ukraine. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, NordVPN. We use NordVPN because we think it's the best, and we were using them a long time before they became sponsors of ours. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. It's a way of connecting to the internet through a secure connection, and this allows you to access websites without being tracked by third parties. And the best part about using a VPN is that it also encrypts all the data that you send over the internet, so no one can spy on what you're doing online. It means confidential documents remain confidential. Financial transactions, your kids' information and legal documents are a lot safer with a VPN. But a virtual private network gives you a lot more than that. For example, suppose there's a movie you want to watch, but it's geo-blocked in your part of the world. Well, that's where a virtual private network comes into its own. It allows you to bypass all those sort of restrictions so you can watch the movie you want, even if it's geo-blocked. And when it comes to virtual private networks, NordVPN provides you with a faster service. They have 24-hour service support and a 30-day money-back guarantee if you're not completely satisfied. And right now, as a listener to Space Time, we've got some special deals available for you. There are a range of different bundles to suit every need, right up to our 69% off for two years deal, which also includes lots of bonuses you really should go and check it out. That's right, 69% off a two-year plan with bonuses included. So why not check it out today? Go to our website, nordvpn.com forward slash Stuart Gary, and click on the Get the Deal button. And don't forget the 30-day money-back guarantee. So what have you got to lose? Go to nordvpn.com slash Stuart Gary and click on the Get the Deal button to get peace of mind and security with your internet browsing. That URL again, nordvpn.com slash Gary. And of course, we'll put the details in the show notes and on our website. And now, it's back to our show. You're listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. On the red and dusty surface of Mars, nearly 160 million kilometres away, an instrument the size of a school lunchbox is proving that it can reliably make as much oxygen as a small tree. The Mars Oxygen in Situ Resources Utilization Experiment, or MOXIE, has been successfully making oxygen from the red planet's carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere ever since February 2021, when it first touched down on the Martian surface as part of NASA's Mars Perseverance rover mission. Now, a report in the journal Science Advances shows how MOXIE was able to produce oxygen on seven experimental runs and in a variety of different atmospheric conditions, including during the day and night and through different Martian seasons. In each run, the instrument reached its target of producing 6 grams of oxygen per hour, which is about the same rate as a modest tree on Earth. 
Scientists believe that a scaled-up version of MOXIE could be sent to Mars ahead of any human mission and continually produce oxygen at a rate of several hundred trees. Now, at that capacity, the system should generate enough oxygen both to sustain humans once they arrive and also to provide some of the fuel that rockets would need for returning the astronauts back to Earth. MOXIE's steady output is a promising first step towards that goal. MOXIE Principal Investigator Michael Heck from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, says scientists have learned a tremendous amount that will inform future systems on a larger scale. MOXIE's oxygen production on Mars also represents the first demonstration of in-situ resource utilisation, which is the idea of harvesting and using a planet's materials, in this case carbon dioxide on Mars, to make resources, in this case oxygen, that would otherwise need to have been transported from Earth. So, this really is an historic first demonstration of actually using local resources on the surface of another planetary body and then transforming them chemically into something that would be useful for a human mission. Of course, the current version of MOXIE is small by design in order to fit aboard the Perseverance rover. And it was only built to run for short periods of time, starting up and shutting down after each run, depending on the rover's exploration schedule and other mission responsibilities. Now, in contrast, a full-scale oxygen factory would include much larger units and would ideally run continuously. Despite the necessary compromises in MOXIE's current design, the instrument has shown that it can reliably and efficiently convert the Martian atmosphere into pure oxygen. It does this by first drawing in the Martian air through a filter that cleans it of contaminants. The air is then pressurised and sent to a solid oxide electrolyzer, which electrochemically splits the carbon dioxide-rich air into separate oxygen ions and carbon monoxide. The oxygen ions are then isolated and recombined to form breathable molecular oxygen, or O2, which MOXIE then measures for quality and purity before releasing it harmlessly back into the air, along with carbon monoxide and other atmospheric gases. MOXIE engineers have started up the instrument seven times throughout the Martian year, each time taking a few hours to warm up, then another hour to make some oxygen before powering down again. Each run was scheduled for a different time of the day or night, and in different seasons, to see whether MOXIE could accommodate shifts in the planet's atmospheric conditions. See, the thing is, the Martian atmosphere is far more variable than Earth's. The density of the air alone can vary by a factor of two throughout the year and the temperature can vary by up to 100 degrees. One objective is to show scientists that MOXIE can run in all seasons. And so far, MOXIE's shown that it can make oxygen at almost any time of the Martian day or year. The only thing not yet demonstrated is running the machine at dawn or dusk when temperatures are changing rapidly. Mission managers are now planning to push MOXIE's capacity and increase production especially during the Martian spring when atmospheric density and carbon dioxide levels are high. They'll also monitor the system for signs of wear and tear. As MOXIE is just one experiment among several aboard Perseverance, it can't run continuously as a full-scale system would. Instead, the instrument needs to start up and shut down with each run, and that's a thermal stress that can degrade the system over time. But if MOXIE can operate successfully despite repeatedly turning off and on, that would suggest that a full-scale system, one designed to run continuously, could do so for thousands of hours. To support a human mission to Mars, NASA would want to bring lots of stuff and have it pre-positioned. Things like computers, spacesuits and habitats, all of which weigh a lot and take up a lot of room. 
So if you can make your oxygen locally, you can save a lot on transport and weight. This report from NASA TV. We've all seen The Martian, and we know we need breathable oxygen to survive on Mars. What's up, Watney? It turns out it's a lot better to be able to extract it from the atmosphere of Mars, then bring it with you on the trip over, if you have the technology. I'm here with Jim. He's going to teach us how to get oxygen on the surface of Mars. Jim, can you tell us where we are right now? Absolutely. This is the JPL Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Laboratory. We call this the MOXIE Lab for short. The MOXIE instrument is a demonstration mission designed to prove that we can produce pure oxygen on the surface of Mars. So how do we make oxygen on the surface of Mars? It's actually a fairly easy process. Basically what we do is we take Mars atmosphere, we run it into a unit called a solid oxide electrolysis unit, which is basically a fuel cell in reverse. Wait a second, reverse fuel cell? How does that work? What happens is, is we have Mars atmosphere enter, goes into the SOXI unit. It's then heated up to 800 degrees Celsius. We inject energy into the cathode and anode. And then what happens is, is oxygen is separated from the CO2. To test this technology, you're gonna need some Martian atmosphere. Where on earth are you gonna find that? We know the composition of Martian atmosphere. It's 95% CO2 with some trace gases. And there are companies here on Earth that will mix that gas for us. We call it Mars Mixed Gas, and we use it for most of our testing. Well, what if we land on top of a mountain or down in a valley? The conditions for extracting oxygen are totally different. We've got to test for all of that. So the way we test for it is we design an instrumentation system that covers all of the conditions of the instrument. Lower pressures, higher pressures, clogging filters, oxygen purity, all of that stuff. Why don't we just bring the oxygen with us when we go to Mars? It's very difficult to bring something from the surface of the Earth to the surface of Mars, and it costs millions and millions of dollars. So it's much easier and better for us if we try to get that resource from the planet. And in that report from NASA TV, we heard from NASA JPL mechanical engineer Mike Meacham and NASA JPL systems engineer Jim Lewis. This is Space Time. Still to come, Russia ramps up its space program as the Kremlin continues its relentless invasion of Ukraine. SpaceX reaches another Starlink milestone. And later in the science report... New claims that running your cell phone over Wi-Fi networks could have an impact on sperm mobility. All that and more still to come on Space Time. As the Kremlin continues its relentless invasion of Ukraine, Moscow has launched another four satellites into orbit, making it the fifth flight in two weeks. The latest launch aboard a Soyuz rocket from the Viskoshny Cosmodrome in Russia's Far East carried three new Garnet's M communications satellites and the experimental SCIF-D broadband internet satellite. The 280-kilogram Garnet's M series satellites were placed into a 1,500-kilometre-high orbit. They're designed to provide data and mobile communication services to subscribers globally, directly competing against SpaceX's Starlink constellation, which is providing free communications links for Ukrainian fighters. The SCIF-D spacecraft was deployed into a higher 870-kilometre-high near polar orbit and will be used to provide services in the more remote Russian Arctic regions. 
This latest launch wrapped up a busy month for Russian spaceflight operations with five launches in just two weeks. That's despite the ongoing boycott by Western nations over Moscow's actions against Ukraine. The missions have included the launch of a Soyuz from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome 800 kilometers north of Moscow, carrying a GLONASS military navigation satellite, a Proton rocket launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan, carrying an Angolan telecommunications satellite, an Angara rocket launched from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome, carrying the MK3 military satellite, and another Soyuz launch from Plesetsk carrying two clandestine military satellites. SpaceX has passed another milestone with its Starlink Broadband Internet Satellite Project, launching its 3,500th Starlink satellite. The achievement was part of the latest launch of another 54 Starlink satellites aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from Pad 40 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Base in Florida, bringing the total number of Starlinks now orbiting the Earth to 3,505. It was also the company's 48th successful launch so far this year. By comparison, SpaceX recorded 31 launches last year. The 260-295 kg Starlink satellites use KU, KA and E-band phased array antennas and are currently being placed into a range of orbits stretching from 540 to 582 km high where they're posing a serious problem for astronomers trying to undertake important research. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news insights this week with a science report. There are new claims today that running cell phones over Wi-Fi networks could have an impact on sperm mobility. The authors found there was a decrease in sperm mobility and viability in semen samples that were exposed to cell phones making a six-hour WhatsApp voice call over Wi-Fi, but not those making the same call over 4G or 5G. However, the findings, which were presented to the Conference of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in Anaheim, California, has not yet been peer-reviewed, and it's being seriously questioned by some scientists. Professor Rodney Croft, chief investigator at the Australian Centre for Electromagnetic Bioeffects Research and professor of health psychology with the University of Wollongong, says the authors haven't provided evidence to support their claims, and there's insufficient statistical details to determine whether results are actually more than just mere chance. Croft says there's also no indication that the samples were in fact exposed to higher radio frequency electromagnetic emissions during the Wi-Fi than control conditions. Also, no indication of which conditions were being compared to which, which is especially important for interpretation, and no experimental manipulation to differentiate between power source heating and any effect due directly to the radio frequency electromagnetic emissions. And all that makes the author's conclusions unsupported and inconsistent with their results. Associate Professor Ken Karapetis, the Assistant Director of Health Impact Assessment at the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, APANSA, says the authors do not seem to have improved on the methodological limitations of previous studies, and in fact their methodology seems to be somewhat worse, with no dosimetric assessment in terms of the RF-specific absorption rates in the sperm samples investigated. Dissymmetry is the science of accurately understanding the level and type of energy that's being absorbed by the tissue or cells from different electromagnetic sources. 
However, Jeffrey DeLewis from the School of Environmental and Life Sciences and Reproductive Medicine at the University of Newcastle says that it was a good study with a reasonable conclusion, although he too felt more clarity was needed on the issue of dosimetry in the experiment's design. A new study predicts that over 6% of people who catch symptomatic COVID-19 will go on to develop long COVID. The findings reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association are based on computer simulations using real-world data from 1.2 million people with symptomatic COVID-19 from 22 countries. Scientists say around 6.2% of people with COVID-19 are likely to experience at least one of the three long COVID symptom clusters three months after infection. The three clusters include persistent fatigue with bodily pain or mood swings, cognitive problems, or ongoing respiratory issues. Researchers found women were more likely to have long COVID than men, as were patients who ended up in hospital, especially if intensive care was required. On average, long COVID symptoms persisted for nine months in hospitalised patients and four months in non-hospitalised patients, although 15.1% of patients continued to experience symptoms 12 months after infection. The latest revised figures suggest that some 6.6 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it was first detected near China's Wuhan Institute of Virology around September 2019. However, the World Health Organization says the true death toll is likely to be over 15 million, with some 634 million confirmed cases globally. While the Lancet Commission, a panel of world-leading experts in policy and disease management, estimate around 18 million people have now died because of COVID-19. A new study claims that cutting your alcohol consumption will cut your cancer risk, but only if you stick to it. The findings reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association show that if you start drinking more or quit drinking, your cancer risk may change as well. Scientists monitored 4.5 million South Korean adults, finding that those who increased their alcohol consumption had a higher risk of alcohol-related cancers, including esophagus, colorectum, liver, larynx, breast, head and neck cancers, compared to those who kept their alcohol consumption the same. Interestingly, those who reduced their alcohol consumption actually experienced a higher cancer risk temporarily, but that risk was reduced if quitting or cutting alcohol was sustained. A new iOS 16.1 software update for Apple users and updates for Chrome no longer available for Windows 7 or 8.1. With the details on those stories and more, we're joined by Alex Saharov-Royt from ity.com. Yeah, look, Windows 7 and 8.1 will lose access to the latest versions of Google Chrome from February 7 next year. So that's version Chrome 110, and this uh, basically brings... Google in line with Microsoft planning January 10 as a date that Edge will stop supporting those older Windows versions. If you've got Windows 7 or 8.1, you should be able to run Windows 10 on those devices. Both Windows 7 and Windows 8.1 are now officially out of support, or effectively they are. I mean, Windows 10 is the currently supported version, and of course, Microsoft is on to Windows 11. And look, if your computer is too old to run a supported version of Windows, you can always go to Linux, and there's also Google's own Chrome OS. There's a thing called Chrome OS Flex, which is available for 
versions of computers that are just too old to run the latest versions of Windows. So if you've been relying upon Windows 7 or 8.1, which you know are not being actively or properly supported as, as you would expect with 10 or 11, and you, you're using Chrome, you'll still be able to use the older versions of Chrome, but zero days are discovered all the time, and it's just not safe to be running older operating systems with older browsers. You're effectively guaranteed to be hacked. So look, you've got a bit of a warning, you've got a few months to go, but new computers are cheap, Linux is better than it's ever been, Chrome OS Flex is available, there are options out there. You don't have to use the older versions of Windows unless you've got very specific versions of Windows software you need to use. So it's really time to reconsider running older equipment and if possible, the upgrade to Windows 10 is free. Linux was always sort of the platform you'd use if you were a real computer geek. Is it still like that or is it user-friendly now? Oh, look, Linux is much more user-friendly than it ever was in the past. I mean, these current versions have effectively App Store equivalents. There are Office-compatible Office suites. They have Chrome. They have Firefox. They have, you know, most things run in the browser these days. And there are so many different flavors of Linux. There's Mint Linux and Ubuntu, but there's all sorts of other ones that are meant to be so easy to use. You might still have some difficulties installing it. You might need a, the help of a friend, but you shouldn't have any problems. It's uh, come a long way since 10, 15 years ago. Linux is uh, free. It's well supported. It's regularly updated. There's tons of software for it. Uh, so, you know, if you really want to hang on to older equipment, you've got plenty of choices. You can also use a Windows 7 or 8.1 computer without being connected to the internet. But if you did that, you wouldn't need Google Chrome because you, you wouldn't be online. Now, there are some people who would partition their computer so they'd use Linux but also use the, the original operating system as well. Is, is that still doable? Look, you can uh, partition your hard disk and you can install a second operating system but you know, new computers are quite inexpensive these days and you can buy second-hand computers, you know, older ones, quite cheaply. So the best thing to do is to leave your old computer as it is. Use any old software that you need on that old computer. Don't connect it to the internet. Use USB sticks or USB hard disks to transfer information from one computer to another if you do definitely need older programs and uh, just get with the times move to a new computer you'll be much happier and you won't have to worry about zero days coming to ruin your day now the other big bit of news concerns apple what's happening there well a couple of things one apple has launched the updates for ios 16.1 ipad os 16.1 tvOS 16.1, watchOS 9.1. There are 20 security vulnerabilities that have been updated in both iPadOS and iOS. And, uh, you know, if you're still stuck on iOS 15.7, in theory, those zero-day vulnerabilities have not been patched. And often people wait for a 0.1 of a new OS, you know, from the 0, .0 from 16.0. They might wait to a 0.1 to decide it's time to update. So if you have been on the, uh, on the fence about updating, it's pretty much safe to do it now. I mean, obviously, if if you have specific health or other apps that you rely upon that are really important, you might want to check with the manufacturer's website or on their app store page to make sure that they truly have been updated for 16.1. But the vast majority of apps will work just fine and it's definitely worth updating. And uh, one I would wait on, for example, though, is macOS Ventura, which is now also up to macOS Ventura 13. Now, that is a point zero. And there are some programs that will take their time to be updated. One example is I use a program called Camtasia to do screen recording and video interviews and uh, it's not going to be until a couple of days after the official launch that the 2022 version of the Camtasia software will be able to work properly with macOS Ventura. The older versions just don't have support. You know, you should always double check with important software that you use that is not the mainstream like Office or certain browsers just to make sure that that software has been updated. But you know, for the everyday user who just uses a browser and uses internet document creation or Word or Office 
that sort of thing, yeah, you'll be fine. But if you are using specific programs, always make sure you double check with the manufacturer to make sure their software has been updated for Ventura or the newest iPad versions. It's just common sense to check, but the everyday user should be fine. And uh, look, you really should go to apple.com.au to have a look, but also youtube.com slash Apple. There's a new video that talks about the new iPads. There's a new 10th generation iPad that looks a bit like an iPad Air. doesn't have the home button anymore. There are new iPad Pros with the M2 processor, which match the M2 processor in the uh, Apple MacBook Air. And there's a new Apple TV, one with Wi-Fi only, one with Wi-Fi and internet at 64 gig and 128 gig. So new Apple hardware. There's more Apple hardware to come next month in, in terms of new MacBook Pros, but uh, lots of Apple news and uh, always new hardware, which is great to see at this time of the year. That's Alex Sahara of Roy from ity.com. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimewithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 